Welcome to Electricians and Mad Men. I'm Ian Gorman. Today we feature my conversation with Jim Roll. Jim has been at the controls for many of the most creative and influential albums to come out of Michigan, including works by Frontier Ruckus, Chris Bathgate, Breathe Owl Breathe, Matt Jones, Gifts or Creatures, and many more. His former studio, Backseat Productions, was a cornerstone of the Ann Arbor music scene for years, before Jim joined Willis Sound, a brand new full-service facility stocked with vintage gear and centered around a 32-channel API 1608 console. We talked in Willis's spacious and beautiful control room in May of 2018. Willis Sound is a converted Baptist church uh, built or opened in 1888, so it's 130 years old. 10, 15 minutes uh, south east of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, the studio was opened in 2017 in June uh, when I closed up shop at my backseat productions in Ann Arbor and moved over. Uh, the owners... Uh, ben Lorenz and Jason McGee had been building this facility or refurbing it for a couple of years. So they had a lot of work that they had to do. But um, <clears throat> this, the room we're sitting in today, maybe we'll post a picture for you someday. Uh, this was a really well done room. They were serious about making it a serious studio. As you can see, we now have 32 channel by 8 API a console fully stocked with EQs and stuff. Um, we'll get into the gear later. And but they they stocked it with professional EQ. They did floor plates and and wiring and just a lot of things that were way in my dream list. Yeah. Well, this is a beautiful control room. I mean, it it feels good just talking and you know yeah being a human in here. Yeah. Um, and the the treatment is is extensive and uh, uh, very nicely done and, and it's really spacious and of course packed with tons of cool stuff. Yeah. And it's nice to hear you say that. Cause I really, having been in your studio, I think you take a lot of care to have your environment be really have a great vibe. Like when I recorded as a musician in your studio, it was, it was really welcoming and inspiring environment. So thanks. Um, so it's nice to hear you say that. And, and I think that's, kind of uh the basic so it's a it's got a large a big large uh, live room uh one very uh pretty decent sized booth that can handle drums but a lot of times we do vocals and it's a very dead booth sonically dead uh reverberation wise and then we have another booth that's about half dead with a couple live walls um but essentially it's a two booth one huge room studio yeah well the the live room here is definitely the centerpiece of this place it's this enormous room that has you can get huge drum sounds in fit a large band in there comfortably how's it like been working out of that room uh well it's been it's been an education i think uh it's because it's you know again it's very big uh it was the congregation room it's wooden we have we kept wooden floors in there uh, it's got about, I don't know, 20 foot high ceilings and it's not an A-frame in there. It's flat on the top. It kind of rounds to the sides, but it still has the church windows. So you can picture a pretty big room. I had to learn to uh, 
how to deal with the bleed and make it a strength, which is always, you know, any room of that size, you, if you're going to run a lot of mics in it, you have to learn what's going on in there. So, uh, that said, I've gotten some really tight, you know, great sounding rock sounds in there, but still have had most of the band in there, excepting Mm -hmm. vocals. Of course, I, I wouldn't record vocals live in there with, with a full drum kit. It's just Uh too tanky for me. Um, but it, you know, uh, I've had, it felt like a little more of a challenge sometimes when I had our, uh, our Steinway going in a jazz setup with a drummer in the room. Sometimes I, I longed for a little bit deader piano sound. I was getting drums reverberating off the mm-hmm. plate in right. the, in the, in the grand piano and stuff like that. So, uh, like anything, strengths and weaknesses, uh, but I've, you know, I, I think I've got it down pretty good now where, you know, if I'm the one engineering or helping somebody engineer in there, we're going to get some good sounds. Sweet. Um, when you talk about the bleed issues in that room, the thing that makes that different is the size of the room. Is that right? Just the, uh, you're not just getting bleed from other instruments, which you get in any studio that you work in, but a really huge sound yeah. and a lot of reverb coming in and everything, right? Exactly. And it's not, uh, and it's not marble it's you know wood and so that can and it was designed as a church the reason i say that is it, it's not always you you don't want it on everything you don't want every mic to be just reverberating wood like it, it wasn't designed in 1888 i don't believe it was designed entirely just for its acoustics mm-hmm. so uh point being you have to be careful you get some low low mid build up um well, you know, in the 1880s, people were smaller and their voices were quieter. And they were shorter. Like, this room was designed for a five foot six population. Uh-huh. And we're running 5'11 here. <laughs> uh-huh. So, but, and, and who knows? 2019 might be, you know. Yeah. Might it be could keep growing. Six feet. Yeah. yeah. And their lung capacities, uh, you know, in general, I'm constantly telling people breathe shallower. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I, you know that's how my brain works. Anyways, I don't know if I'm overstating mm-hmm. it, but I'm I'm always really shooting to get a great a great sound, and and there's part of me that wants some 70s, which uh-huh. uh, and accepting John Bonham, who you know, and some of that stuff, which was huge. There was also a lot of Steely Dan and stuff in the 70s, which was very dead. So, um, I, I'm not saying that I like. I want everything to be dead. I really like the live sound, especially for my indie side as mm-hmm. loves that kind of sound. But I, I do want to control. <laughs> I want you want control. to have the choice. Yeah. You, you want to have all the tools available. Yeah. yeah. I want to control in the mix. Yeah. I'd say there's a little learning curve for an engineer to work on that room. That's mm-hmm. my main point. It's just a it's it's part of it is the size and part of it is the amount of reflective uh that's we probably will deaden it a little bit, to be honest. Mm-hmm. When you're recording drums in there, how do you, what do you use for room mics? What do you like doing for that? For actual room room mics? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we have a stereo uh, AEA that I sometimes, I had been using initially for, I had been using it initially for a room sound, but um, 
I, you ever read, I remember reading Albini, this was years ago, and he was saying that for his room sound, he would take a condenser and put it really close to the wall, aiming at the wall, and catch a really early reflection rather than getting kind of that big tanky thing. So I've, I've been erring towards that lately, especially with our room, because I'm going to get the tanky stuff anyways, possibly on another mic where mm-hmm. I'm going to get a natural room sound a little bit on something. I mean, I definitely will throw up a, you know, like a kind of a, a U60, a U67 style mic somewhere and just kind of put a U87, I should say, kind of not a tube mic, but I'll throw up just kind of a clone up there, like a mm-hmm. road or something. But, uh, but if I'm really serious about that, I know this band's going to want like, um, a lot of natural reverberation. I'll, I'll do the I'll be anything and really just get up close with a couple condensers of any kind, even like octavas or something. So you're talking about taking a couple of condensers and pointing them at the wall close to the wall. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. As a, uh, I remember reading, because I was always impressed with Albini's room sound. It felt like sure. it, it, I was always like, huh, how come mine just sounds like, you know, a garage or like a, you know, unintentional room sound. <laughs> and his has this kind of vibey thing. And, and then I remember coming upon an article that said to, that he would put it up real close and just get literally, he wanted to make sure what he was getting was coming off of a wall mm. and capture it early off of a wall. Neat. So give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when, so when I do that, I'll just actually take our, uh, like I said, our Octavus, just something kind of small. I mean, the other thing I learned, which may have been common knowledge, but wasn't to me, is that in general, the, the small diaphragms are more accurate and the large diaphragms, it's almost like a trampoline versus a really tight little, uh, you know, surface the tight surface actually gets more base is more honest than the trampoline the bigger uh the bigger capsule ones are more about your character and stuff so Mm. for the room sound i don't mind it just being a nice you know an octava and just getting a whatever's there Mm -hmm. it's not crucial that it has character coming off the wall (laughs) right right uh yeah, ha- having something honest is probably more useful than something yeah. really skewed for yeah. that. Because dishonesty in a church. <laughs> Not it is frowned upon, Ian. Uh-huh. That's read that in a book somewhere. Yeah. We have yeah. to you, you on your journeys, you have to if you find uh, an engineer who's really well versed in Bible who went to like really was serious mm-hmm. about their Bible school, ask them what book of the Bible is most relevant for audio engineers. Mm. Cause the one we all need to right. study verse and chapter. Then we'll put it on display out in the, right. the sanctuary here. Well, everybody knows that the, the engineers <laughs> are most guided by Corinthians, uh-huh. but I don't know. Aren't those Star Trek films? I don't know. <laughs> um. <laughs> the Corinthians had the, the, yeah, the weird foreheads. Yeah. No. Known for their leather. Yes. I love those. <laughs> you can tell them much I've read the Bible. Right. You and I, we, you and I should do a... We should do a Bible like, podcast. Just like our version of the Bible. Like, we know so little. Like, Genesis. Okay, we're pretty sure Genesis is the beginning. It would somehow be less accurate than drunk history. Yeah, yeah. right. But without all the, the yeah. slurring. <laughs> right on. Um, going back to the... Uh, uh, the live setup in the main room here. I'm, I'm uh, 
interested in miking techniques for such a large room because it's kind of its own thing. Right. Um, when you're using room mics in a room that large and relying on that to be kind of your independent room character or sound enlarger, are you trying to go the opposite way with the close mics on a kit and really try to get them dry and controllable? Exactly. I mean, that that's almost the bigger challenge, right? Mm. I, should, I should mention that Ben and me, Ben and I, will both... We have stairway uh, going up to a loft that mm. gets r- tons of like, like, you know, church extra. So we will use that too. So there's there's stairways that we will also mic. It's kind of a natural reverb chamber. Here. Yeah. Um, do you ever use that room or any of the other areas here as a reverb chamber and re-mic stuff? Not yet, but that's obviously a really good mm-hmm. idea. But um, Ben, again, one of our our kind of audiophile owner, Jason's more than musician owner i would say mm-hmm. though ben is a great drummer his dad was a jazz professor he's so i don't want to understate that but he's more into gear but he's already planning different ways we can actually have pre-setups for mm-hmm. for uh chambers using some of the rooms yeah. here yeah well the, you guys obviously take reverb real seriously here not yeah. just not just with that beautiful room sound but you were showing me around before we talked here you have an emt 140 plate you, you uh just got a couple akg spring reverbs there's a lot of cool yeah. analog options here yeah and and th- i think that's the goal is when you have a space this big and we're lucky enough to have some some financial resources uh and engineer i mean he's still looking we need to look for bargains we're not like swimming in money but they're you know they're serious about equipping it people are obviously yeah dedicated here and making investments exactly so that's a good way to put it so you know I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe someday we'll get a Bricasti, which I still wouldn't mind having one. But we're, you know, also nice. We're we're loading in an EMT one hundred and forty, which, you know, that's a dream, yeah. dream for me. And and especially, but point being, there's so, you know, as organic as we can be here, uh, that's our goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But going back to your question, I, yes, I really have to lean towards. I feel like I'm compensating on the close mics to really make sure I get as much of a, a dry, uh, close, rich tone on the close mics. And so far, that has meant ribbon mics everywhere for me. So mm. um, the figure eight gives me a little bit of control over the some cancellation, uh, but I find myself just loading everything with ribbon mics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you say everything, I assume overheads. Are are you close miking with ribbons as well? No, yeah, good point. So, on the drums, a lot of times I'll have two sets of ribbons of a uh, a center stereo pair, and then I'll have a wider pair. And I don't always use all those, but it's just kind of over over preparing. And then uh, I will get close with some standard, you know, mics. Sometimes I'll use. Some people don't like 421s. I do. I do still like 421s on toms, mm-hmm. but we have a pair of the Josephson. Uh, I forget what they're called. E22s or S22e. Those are Albini staples mm-hmm. too, I guess. Um, those are really nice for. They're they're designed to kind of go at the at the head and get into tight spots and um, use those sometimes, but. I'll still use honestly. I'm still a 57 guy on a snare. I'll always mm-hmm. have at least a 57 on there. Um, a lot of people, you know, 
great engineers I've worked with will go condensers and, and mm-hmm. different things on the snares. But um, I guess I'm still that kind of standard sound. 57 sound great on snares. Yeah. But not a million records. Yeah, I think. And, uh, and it tends to work. Mm-hmm. And the, the kick is where I'll super compensate because I'll, I mean, I'll do, mm. you know, I'll get, have one in on the beater. Uh, on the inside, I mean, kind of angled off, not square to the to the head, but inside the drum. Then I'll have like some kind of Fat Forty Seven style uh, outside. I may also throw a. We've got a homemade. Uh, what are those called? The big speaker. Uh, beat like, like sub kick. Yeah, sub kick type thing. Yeah. Uh, so we've got one of those. Um, Just to clarify for anybody listening, that's the. Uh, the technique where you wire up a speaker and just run in reverse, use it like a microphone. Exactly. Right? And it's more about, sub, well, sub kick. So it's mm-hmm. about, you know, a little bit more sub frequencies. Um, and then sometimes we'll barricade that because of the the room. So we're, we're big on, you know, building forts around things. So, I'll have a, you know, we'll have a, a bench over all those kick mics and then some packing mm-hmm. blankets and, you know, just kind of. Mm-hmm campfire s'mores yeah <laughs> right where's the where's jim uh, i think he's having a s'more by the kick drums <laughs> um so i wrestle with that because i i want i don't know i guess i like i say i still there's part of me that's still like hearing a steely dan drum kit in my head all mm-hmm. the time and just kind of like okay i want i want the awesome room sound and i also want the option for it to be perfectly pristine uh you know mm-hmm. from this like that so that's that's just my brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing that I really love about this place is that it, it is heavy on the character here. And when I say that, I mean, there's a philosophy of studios where people are trying to make them really neutral and, and uh, uh, almost a blank canvas for, for artists, which I understand too. But I feel like a lot of people love working in a space where the space is really a prominent part of the recording, whether that is through the the feeling and the experience of being here working or whether it's actually sonically the rooms and how that imprints on stuff. Tell me a little bit about when you're building this place, about what kind of things like that you're thinking of here, especially with the way this control room is built and laid out. Well, first of all, you're, you're completely correct. And actually that's a good reminder for me. It's definitely, uh, you know, it's not a small dead studio where you're going to add your effects later. This is a character space where you, you know, the, it's a cliche, but the room is an instrument, right? So, mm-hmm. um, in this case, it's a, <laughs> it's a huge instrument. Yeah. Uh, slightly off topic. Aesthetically, it was built with the idea for it to have character, but that the artist would provide the character. So you may, you're not, if you look around, you don't see like a lot of metal posters or a lot mm-hmm. of. Uh, jazz grates on the walls or you know it doesn't it doesn't cater to any one thing so they're trying to uh, build a place where the personality of the artist is amplified so you whatever vision you have for a creative space it's in your head and you bring it into the room so that's aesthetically uh functionally yes without question everything even this room we're in now this is a control room and it's one of the it's a fairly live control room. Mm-hmm. If Ian's here with me. The floors are wood. The diffusers are 
mostly wood visibly. They do have base traps behind them. There's mm-hmm. we do have large traps, you know, scattered about. But I would say, you know, surface wise, you know, ninety percent of it is 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 reflective. So that's not completely true. You'd have to see the room. We'll set we'll set mm-hmm. up a picture for you. Yeah, there'll be links in the yeah. show notes um, to the website. But very this this is a very reflective room. So this room is about live. Uh, reverberant sounds and and I think everything here was designed that way we absolutely killed any reflections in the in the one booth just because you know you mm-hmm. you need that and I, as an engineer I'd be insecure if I didn't have that option right uh, but that's you know 10% of our space if that uh, of our recording space but we even mix in a in a slightly live environment mm-hmm. uh, but I've found that my mixes translate better here than mm. at backseat, which wasn't super dead, but it was carpeted floors and, you know, a lot of room treatment. And corner, my corner treatments were not diffusers. They were all absorbent or, or uh, you know, bass trap type thing. So right. um, it yeah. doesn't, I wouldn't, you know, it, it's a lively mixing room, but it works for me. Yeah. Well, obviously a lot of care has been put into the acoustic treatment here and, you know, for anybody listening who might be on the newer side to to treating their own rooms, the name of the game isn't always live versus dead. It's more about uh, translatability and making the room be relatively neutral and 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 revealing and that sort of thing. And I feel like you guys have done a great job of that here. It feels really rich just being in here. Thank you. you. Know? Yeah, ben, and Ben did the math. You know, he. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can show you, but there are two bronze plates on the floor and those spaces were catered to as sonic you know listening points um and we do in general kind of use them but yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting environment environment for me but when i'm sitting up there i think the fact that the back walls off me a bit uh is really helpful for me versus my old studio and and i'm getting the initial mix again ian's correct that mix if I'm up there making critical decisions, I don't want to hear a lot of reflection mm-hmm. or comb filtering or anything off the board, and I don't feel like I'm hearing a lot of that. I seem to be getting the the sound, and then the people back here on the couch seem to be responding pretty well too. Mm-hmm. Find it's it's uh, relatively even back on the couch. A lot of studios have bass build up that sort of thing. <laughs> it's back still there. slightly bassier. Like uh-huh. I think your seat is. Is probably the basiest one because you're right on a wall. He's on the side wall. I'm sitting here. <laughs> I like feeling. <laughs> um, it was yeah. funny. We had those. Uh, we have a pair of barefoot MM27s here, which a lot of you will know what those mm-hmm. are. Look them up if you don't. But each individual speaker has a pair of uh, opposite facing subs, kind of small sub speakers on the side. Um, we initially had those speakers horizontally placed, and the floor was just like, woo, woo, huh. woo. It was, it really did make a difference. And then we went vertical and it did, it took away, there was a difference. It actually, when they were horizontal, it, it something happened off mm. the floor and people back here were, they'd love it, but it was just no way you couldn't mix. Uh-huh. It was just like, you know, like a dance floor. But now you know what to do if, if someone, someone really wants yeah. that, that sub kick, just turn your yeah. monitor It's like, give side. me five minutes. <laughs> Can I have your biggest guy in five minutes? Because <laughs> <laughs> these speakers weigh 80, 80 pounds each. But uh, we flip them sideways. We, all right, come on in. 
Tell me about the decision to not have a window from the control room to the performance space here. Uh, well, I think it was more out of necessity initially. Uh, they were aware of it from the beginning. This room that we're sitting in, the control room, is the only room that did not exist mm-hmm. when they moved in. So this was built intentionally here. The concept was definitely to do cameras. Uh-huh. Uh, we knew we weren't going to have a window. And we haven't done it yet, to be honest. I've done, we did set up, uh, we have a, a bunch of iPads. So if I really need it, I actually can throw one iPad in there, another in here, and oh. I can Google hang it, uh, and I can actually see. Nice. And, uh, but I do think, you know, it's eventually we may do it. But here's the caveat. I have found that 90, not 99, but 95% of the time, maybe 98% of the time, it's actually an advantage. Uh, it takes away that fishbowl vibe where the artist feels like they're being looked at, particularly during vocals. Hmm. Um, I know a lot of people who like to hide, and I just feel like it, it, it's kind of a neat thing. There's an advantage to it. So when I say 95 to 98%, that doesn't mean 95% of the time, it's way better than having a window. What I'm saying is it's not an issue. There is 3 to 5% of the time where I wish I can see a verbal cue mm-hmm. uh, from the face of the person. Or, you know, in the past, uh, you know, I've had to do weird stuff where it's like I had to give somebody a cue and I would almost do a like a count while I'm looking at it and just give some, you know, go or, mm-hmm. or I could count people in, or if I want to do a silent count, I can give them a, so there's a, a few times that I miss it, but in general, I don't miss it. And then, uh, there has at times been a, a feeling of like the band really gets to just be the band mm-hmm. in there and they don't have to, they're not being looked at. Yeah. Yeah. That can be really beneficial. You know, I, uh, uh, if you listen to episode number two with John Campos of uh, nice. Electricians and Mad Men, uh, he mentions in there that he always sets up singers in a way that people in the booth can't see them. It's just what he does all the time. And, yeah, you know, I do too, honestly. I In the past, I, I always had this like three-way. I still have it out there. It's just a, there's two two-foot by four-foot um, pieces of 703, the, you know, mm-hmm. People at home look it up. It's the standard yeah. kind of sonic stuff. But mm-hmm. I put a cover on it. And then in the middle, I made a six-foot-high one, and I hinged them all together. And it, it, in my old studio, I would always block for vocals. I would block our visuals. So that, mm-hmm. But in that case, they could look around if they wanted to see me. But in general, they could just do their faces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about Backseat for a little bit. So before you came to Willis, you were the owner and main engineer of... A, classic Ann Arbor studio a lot of great records came out of uh, uh, when, when was backseat open and operational <clears throat> uh, it's a tricky question I was at that location for uh, about 10 11 years mm-hmm. so the the commercial location that then for 10 11 years before I had it as backseat it was called 40 ounce and it also had a lot of great indie mm. like ultra indie rock bands out of Ann Arbor also notoriously had a uh, incredibly right-wing Michigan-based guitarist, Bo Hunter, in there, did a record once. Hmm. Uh, but I wasn't there uh-huh. for that. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Fergie from 
uh, Black Eyed Peas came in there and cut demos of a lot of the songs that ended up as major hits on the first Black Eyed Peas record. So wow. that was all before I was there. So it had a little something going on before uh-huh. I took over. But then I added as backseat, which was like, like you say, kind of a f- indie folk, art folk, indie art <laughs> uh, hub for about a good decade. Yeah. from I'd say about 2007 to 2017. That's, mm. I guess, 10 years. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, so many great records came out of there. A uh, uh, lot of great Breathe Out Breathe records. Uh, Chris Bathgate did some real... Real uh, important work there. Uh, Gifts are creatures. It's just ton, tons of great bands. Frontier Ruckus and Frontier Ruckus. Yeah. Uh, Matt Jones. Mm-hmm. A lot of yeah. I mean, I'm super proud of so many of those records. Yeah. It was such a treat to have, especially Gifts are creatures. Was that was just so neat to get some people from, you know, Brandon and uh, they're just yeah. and Bethany are so awesome and in course. Uh, Probably a bunch of upstate people came down and played on that record with them. So yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Seth was, I think, the producer. Possibly, he was definitely the guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of really varied work you're known for. But but one running thread that I see through it that always really interests me is there's kind of there's this combination of organic sounds and real natural almost raw stuff in there with really experimental stuff and, and, and subtle mixing stuff and backdrops and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, Would you say that that fits the aesthetic? A lot of the people that you work with kind of one foot in the real world and one foot in dreamland. Yeah. I, as you're describing that, I immediately thought of breathe out, breathe because they brought so much of that just from their natural, so like constantly bringing the Northwoods. That wasn't me passing gas. That was my elbow rubbing uh-huh. on. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, we'll turn it. I'm on not the gassing in there, man. <laughs> um, so much of that was, you know, Micah obsessed with, you know, he's a Northwoods woodcut artist, and so you know, plays acoustic guitar, and then he was obsessed with running like uh, Casio keyboards through a you know, garage sale karaoke machine. So yeah, I mean, they, they all, and I think same thing, Frontier Ruckus, uh, um, Zach, who's their trumpet player, you know, is also always experimenting in trumpet and saw. He was also always experimenting with, you know, little, you know, weird keyboards and, and stuff like that. So yeah. And, and Matt, I think, I think that's a good description. I also, had a pretty good roomy vibe there, but we really enjoyed bringing in a lot of, you know, not a ton of technology. Like I wasn't big on drum machines just cause I didn't know how to use them and stuff, but, uh, but definitely, you know, pedals and keyboards and keyboards through amps and filters and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, actually let me expand it. The one, when my own personal, recording career i did a record in 2000 called inhabiting the ball and i i made it at home but i mixed it with brian deck in chicago who i hope you get to interview someday and he was obsessed with room sound in fact he had just finished a record 
for Califone or somebody called Room Sound, and mm-hmm. he really was doing that kind of thing before me, and I think it maybe rubbed off a little on me. But my my artists were driving it. I wasn't. I never drive them to do what I want. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think that Brian Deck is kind of, you know, the godfather of that kind of sound for me. Yeah, me too. Me yeah. too. A lot of those records of Room Sound, specifically, a lot of his work with Califone. Iron and Wine. Yeah. Yeah, really. Uh, uh, what was that? The Fruit Bats. Did you ever hear that mm-hmm. stuff? Yeah. 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 So you you mentioned that you don't really steer bands towards that. Uh, how, how do you view your role when you're working with a band in the sense of being a a technician for them and just helping them realize their vision versus putting one foot in kind of producer role and kind of throwing out your own ideas and, and uh, production thoughts and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, definitely always call myself an engineer. I don't think of myself as a producer. It feels to me like I'm not putting a lot of energy into producing, uh, certainly not in a traditional creative sense of cut that verse and you're, this record needs to sound like that. Or, you know, uh, the, the one side, you know, that I'm probably good at is the emotional support side. So I've almost, you know, in the past, I'd say my best skill as I was even learning to turn the knobs and everything was that I was always kept people, uh, fairly, you know, supported. They knew I was there with them. If I saw them, what, if I intuited that they were stressing, I would try and relieve that. Uh, if they were on a, on a fly, I'd kind of on a roll, I'd keep things going. So I think I was always pretty good at that. I think so. And that's really important. It's a service industry. <laughs> um, so, and then, uh, keeping people focused, I guess I'm pretty good at that. Like I, I, I try not to, I'll go with the artists wherever they want to go. And I, I, I try not to be negative. I'm, I'm sure I've been negative a few times, but in general, I'm, uh, you know, the most negative I might be is like, oh my God, I think I may need to eat. I forgot to eat. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. but you know, like, like, uh, slowing things down if, if I'm actually physically collapsing, but in general, I'm never <laughs> going to be like, you guys, this, this sucks. You know, I almost yeah. wish there was part of me that were like, that sucks. We need to go a new direction. But in general, <laughs> a I'll, tough love yeah, approach. <laughs> tough love it. Uh, yeah. long story short, I, I feel like I'm good at supporting the artist and, and, helping them through the process. And even mm-hmm. if they're experienced, I can, I'm good at knowing if they're running into an emotional trap and refocusing them or just reminding them, Hey man, you know, yeah. you don't need to capture this right this second, you know, take a breath or you're doing great or whatever needs to be done. Yeah. That, that side of it's so important. You know, the, the fostering a creative environment and, and being really supportive of the artist and all of that sort of thing, stuff that doesn't even have anything to do with the gear. Uh, and I find a lot of times vocal sessions more than anything else are really sensitive to the emotion and the mindset of the singer. What kind of things do you do as an engineer when you're in a vocal session that you feel helps the singer out in those kind of ways? Yeah, you're totally right. It's, it's funny. Let me turn the tables real quick. I'm on my last record. 
the one thing my friend really helped me with was sitting there. He's not an engineer, my friend Brian Lilly, but he's made a lot of records. He's kind of he's definitely a producer, but you know, he was great having somebody there while I was singing to give me some kind of feedback or go, that was cool, or you know, just some kind of feedback. So, um, my, the reason for me saying that is I'm in studios every day, but when I was in front of a mic, having somebody there to support or push me or tell me to be more intense or was really helpful. So that's the bed, the bedrock for, yes, it's really important for a lot of people to have somebody there giving them some feedback on the vocals. Uh, what do I do? I, so many, it's, my brain is being flooded with, with things. Like one thing that popped in my mind is just how many times I've had people, it's a weird place to start, but how many times I've had people with like a slight congestion or cold <laughs> and uh-huh. and where we've had that conversation like okay you know what let's do a few takes but you can we know you can nail this and right now you're working really hard for it you know so sometimes I'll help people just go like you know you, this doesn't have to be perfect today or you may get something cool maybe the congestion will be cool but if it's not you know this isn't the end of the world let's give you a little rest so mm-hmm. sometimes I'll do that uh a lot of times I'll if they're new artists I'm really helpful because I can let them know that you know just ease some pressure or take the judgment off and mm-hmm. let them know hey we can do a, a few takes or you, you know you don't do do a, t- a thousand takes you know let's do three takes and let's take a listen and see where you're at and um if I'm working with somebody who's very experienced and very familiar with their voice. I'm thinking of Aaron Zindel, maybe from the Ragbirds, and you know, then it's it's more of a dialogue. It's like, okay, what are you shooting for? Like they know mm-hmm. what they're shooting for, and they know if they've accomplished it. And um, all that said, sometimes I will fight for the vocal take and go like, they'll be judging it because that's the main thing that happens as artists judge themselves harshly (laughs) you know that's not just Mm -hmm. vocalists that's everything so a lot of times my job is to go that was awesome or sit on that one for two days listen to it you you know it may not be what you expected but that is one of the coolest things i've ever heard or you know you know and then sometimes it's just the mechanic hey we got everything but i'll you know i gotta be honest with you you still haven't hit that high note at the end of the bridge and Mm -hmm. you know should we try that or, you know, and sometimes it's just forming a strategy. You guys want to go, you feel best full takes, feeling the whole emotional uh, brunt of the song and you feel better that way or do you want to go chunk by chunk and or do you want to do a couple full takes and then go chunk by chunk? So mm-hmm. <laughs> not very exciting sometimes <laughs> running through all that. But Yeah, but, you know, I assume you got to read each singer in each situation and kind of adapt to yeah. what you feel is going to be the best approach in that moment. Yeah, for I mean, good point. Mm-hmm. It yeah. That's step one every yeah. time. When you get a really inexperienced singer coming in, how do you help alleviate that nervousness or, or just that kind of fear that they might have of being under the microscope or feeling like they got to nail it on the first take or anything like that? Yeah, it's not just singers, it's everybody, but mm-hmm. singing obviously is most noticeable, probably. Mm-hmm. Or musicians in general. Yeah. Um, I just, 
I'm all over it. I'm really on, I'm really active in those situations where I, I'm not like interrupting them, but I just take any instance I can to subtly let them know that, Hey, I had this person in and they played their piano part 80 times. Mm -hmm. You're doing, you're doing great. Mm -hmm. You know, you, yeah, you, it, you know, you did seven guitar solos. It's like, that, that's nothing. Don't worry. I don't want, I don't want it to turn into a video game. Where we're going to play it for three hours. You know, that's not productive either, but you're doing great. Or, you know, Hey, most of the vocalists don't nail the whole song. Be hey, beginning vocalists. Most of the vocalists <laughs> don't nail the whole song. Like uh, most of the best vocalists say no. Like how you feel, you feel, let's see what we feel good about and we'll tackle the stuff you don't have to. But just trying to take away, take away the whole microscope. Right. There's a choo-choo train. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like a lot of people, especially, you know, people that are new to the studio, you know, I blame the media sometimes because it's like whenever we're reading <laughs> interviews with our heroes or anything, nobody ever tells the story about I worked so hard for that vocal and worked on it all night and tried a bunch of different stuff and then came in the next day and fixed the line. Nobody likes telling those stories. Everybody likes telling the stories of I just walked in and was feeling it and nailed yeah. it. You know? Yeah. But like Bowie, I mean, supposedly to this day, I still believe what I heard. It was just Bowie, like everything he did was like a first take. Um, yeah, no, it's exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I think that that obviously translates to life. We're all comparing mm -hmm. ourselves to this right. weirdly reflected, you know, simplified, glorified X. Mm. But, um, it, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know how many times I've said, you know, hey, you're adapt. Just remember, you, not only are you singing the song, but you're adapting to the environment. You're getting used to somebody listening to you for the first time you're this is you're doing incredible hey mm -hmm. did you know you're doing better than you know mo you just sang a great take mm -hmm. that's the funniest part is sometimes a really new person to a studio will will have a concept like that that and they'll be like they'll think they have to nail it all in a single take and such and which actually is kind of fun sometimes because they, sometimes they do. Uh -huh. And you're like, hey, that was awesome. Somebody who's been in a studio a million times might just be like, oh, you know, take care of that syllable and, and I'll break it down to the nitty gritty. But um, I'm, you know, I'm with you uh, on that. I feel like I'm answering questions in little birdie bites, but hopefully <laughs> you can put this together. Oh, we'll edit in a lot more later. Yeah. We'll, we'll do some ADR. Yeah. Um. But I'm always. I, <laughs> I'm just always telling people, you know, in general, they, they are doing better than they think. And mm -hmm. I just constantly reminding them of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk tech about vocals for a minute. What are some of your favorite vocal mics and chains? Uh, well, at this studio, um, I've, I've always been a, always pretty much a condenser guy. I will say that I, I will occasionally use, I'm talking on a SM7 right now. Uh, I will use SM7s on some people, uh, occasionally Cole's 4038 on like a greasy funk song that just kind of could use a little mm -hmm. muted high end. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm always, I'm always pretty much a condenser guy. So mm -hmm. uh, usually a tube condenser. So here uh, I'm almost always using a Flea C12 or a Flea U47. I really like them. I've used real ones. I like the reliability of these, and they sound great to me. Um, uh, 
The flea mics are yeah. really beautiful. Yeah, so I I couldn't be happier with that. So I'm almost running, always running a C12 or U47, usually flea. Uh, and lately, I've just been using. We have 32 channels of API preamps here in our console. I just use those. Uh, I will use our 550 EQ. Not every time. And then we have an Acme uh, tube compressor over there. It's red. The legend supposedly mm -hmm. is that Jack White ordered it in that color, and he ordered three of them and only bought two or something. So I don't know why it's red, because they're usually kind of military green. But So that tube compressor, if I want heavy compression, I use that. But believe it or not, my favorite vocal compressor is the DBX 165 over there. Mm. Uh, it the DB, DBX 160 VUs and stuff are notoriously good on. People always told me on acoustic guitars and bass, which I, I do like them on those. But I like them on on uh, vocals, mm -hmm. and the Acme would serve. It's I believe an optical tube compressor, so kind of a LA-2A vibe, if I want that. Mm -hmm. But to me, actually, when I use the tube compressor, I get more of a, like, it's really cool. The U47 through the tube compressor sounds very 70s to me, almost like mm -hmm. T-Rex. or uh, I've also ran U87s through them, but I, I don't do that as much. I'm almost always a tube Mm -hmm. tube con tube uh, condenser mic. So uh, U87 through a tube compressor sounds very 70s to me. It's kind of a cool sound if we're looking for that 70s pop sound. But mm -hmm. a lot of times I deal with a lot of pretty good singers and a lot of these kind of artsy folk, indie folk records, I feel like are vocal-based ultimately. Mm -hmm. And I think getting a nice, rich, detailed uh, vocal. And also sometimes you'll get a little ambience on those too which it, for the style of music that we've been talking about that i've recorded a lot comes in handy it's okay to have a little vibe on it you know mm -hmm. so you you hit uh some compression on the way in yeah i'll always hit a a little bit on the way in and then in my mixes actually i'm huge on uh this my workflow may change because we're getting a lot of outboard gear here but i still like the repeatability of of UAD plugins. So a lot of times mm -hmm. I'll almost always have the UAD LA2A mm -hmm. on my, uh, it's almost automatically. In fact, I put it on there and just in a very simple way, immediately it gets louder and richer. Yeah. <laughs> it just immediately <laughs> bumps it. And I'm like, ah, yeah, it sounds so good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that I've, I'll do, I'll do, you know, some kind of EQ. If I need to do anything surgical, I'll do something with, you know, mm -hmm. dots and, parametric dots and everything like that but um almost always the la2a uad goes on my vocals mm -hmm. so yeah awesome so uh, often multiple stages of lighter compression on yeah there, that kind of thing yeah mm -hmm. occasionally heavy by accident uh -huh. yeah <laughs> i've had a lot of times <laughs> where I'm like, i was like whoa i forgot to like we switched yeah. all this stuff and it I've had a lot of times where I'm recording something, and man, I'm so happy with the sound of this. I look over at my compressor, and it's hitting way harder than I thought it was, and my first instinct is I should turn that down and go, wait, I was just happy with that a second ago until I looked at the meter. Exactly. You know? So I, 
Exactly right. Like it's not always a bad thing, but I've definitely looked, gone to the end of a session and gone, whoa, that was hitting pretty hard. Uh-huh. Or I've looked in a less uh, destructive way. I've looked at mixes. You know, somebody will come back and say, hey, can you adjust this mix? And I'll look at my mix and I'm like, holy crap, that plugin was just slamming <laughs> yeah. that bass. And uh-huh. uh, so, you know, a lot of moving parts when you're a mix, mix engineer or recording engineer. Kind of an aside, but I've got a warm audio eleven seventy six. Oh yeah, and it's got a little uh, uh, control pot on the back for the to align the meter, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's off by like about a dB and a half right now. The, like the meter, it, it's like its resting spot is about plus one and a half. Got it. Instead of zero. So you've got a, you got one and a half dB of compression. You're not seeing exactly. And so love it. Uh, it's actually I've been kind of leaving it that way because it's like <laughs> it makes me push it a little bit harder. And I really you know yeah <laughs> yeah why not? Yeah. Um, yeah. I do for, to that. I built that uh, blue stripe clone over there and mm-hmm. from a kit and. I love that thing too. So I yeah. occasionally will put that on vocals too. Uh-huh. You know, I was uh, uh, I was listening to your your I believe your most recent solo album recently, the Continuing Adventures of the Butterfly Kid. Yes, which I love. That's such a great album. Thank you. Um, something that I noticed when I was going through the credits of that album because that's the kind of geek I am awesome. is you have a drum tech credit <laughs> in there, which I thought was really cool. Is did you really? You brought in someone to tune and maintain the drums? Yes, which is really funny because it is the only record. Maybe one other record, and it probably would have been the same guy. Um, And actually what's funny is he's uh, Billy Harrington, and he's playing drums with me tonight at a show. Um, I don't know how that turned out, but he came in and... Billy's great. He's he ref, refurbed an old Radio King snare I had, and and uh, he's a great drummer, um, great studio drummer, like super professional, young, good looking ladies. <laughs> I think he's I think he's taken. Where's this going? We'll, we'll, put, <laughs> his, we'll put his digits in the show yeah. notes. <laughs> Sorry, Billy. Uh, but yeah, and for some reason, I don't know what the heck. You know, I don't know if I traded him for a little something or if I, you know, but he ended up. Coming in and just kicking booty on the well, on the, the drums. drum sound killer on that record. So Thanks. nice, you know. Yes, yeah, so I was, was going to ask if that was something you do regularly for projects, or if you just kind of no. fact, it up a level for your own record. Uh, I will say here, Ben, the as I said, the drummer slash audiophile owner, mm-hmm. has come in though, and sometimes uh-huh. handled the drums on a session, which has been really cool because I'm then I'm working on other stuff. So we have to a certain degree, a built-in drum tech. And, and he owns a lot of drums, and so do I. For a non-drummer, I own too many drums. Nice. Uh, so, but yeah. that was not a, that was not, that was a, it, it wasn't even like a special pamper myself thing. It was just something I fell into. Uh-huh. But it was not normal. Yeah. You know, I should do it more. If people had the budget, we'd do so many things, right? Right. Well, you know, it, uh, having the right drums tuned up in, in the right way is such huge. a huge part of getting drum sounds. Yeah, and you know who's best in this town? The best at that is Jeff Michael. Mm. He, although you know, Jeff, if you're listening, I'm going to slightly make fun of you, but he he will tune the tom to pitch as will Ben. Mm-hmm. But he, regardless, like the drummer will sometimes go like, "Dude, I'm not sure I'm going to hit it this song," <laughs> and he'll still do it. So uh-huh. you know, like uh, whereas yeah. I'm the opposite, uh-huh. which is like. 
I want drummers who are good with their drums and I want good drums and I want them tuned well and I can tell if like, man, you tuned that snare a little tight. Sounds like it's, you know, timbali or something that's going to explode. There's no uh-huh. depth to it. Like, I know what I want, but I'm not, I'm not huge on tuning. Like only pitch. if there's a problem. Yeah, I'm more of a, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you worked with Dan Rickabus? No. At all? Uh, I, I worked with him quite a bit and he, he almost always tunes his drums to the track. Like you know, or or some you know, uh, some note that works in the key of the song or something, and yeah, it's, he always oh, it, takes care to do that. Just for the record, if Ben is here, uh-huh. the he it, the session will not go on without the drums uh-huh. being tuned to the song. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, it, it, it's rare that I see that, but there's certain yeah. people that do that all the time, and I think it's cool. Yeah, I I think so. it's cool too, and I just uh, don't do it. I find my particular brand of engineer anxiety is to keep things moving at a pace. (laughs) Well, uh, if it ain't broke, you know, if the drum sounds great, who cares what note, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Neat. Let's see. Um, If it's not that hard, I think I may start, you know, especially if the drummer's good at that. Like, I mean, if the drummer's good at it, it's going to happen. Right. Right. They're probably going to do it anyways. Yeah. And if they're not good at it, then you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation in the middle of the session. Yeah, it's going to be some some heads slammed. (laughs) So, you know, I'm curious about how how you found your way here to this beautiful studio. What what's like the the short version of your path and how you got into audio? Uh always liked shiny objects and machines. Um when I was a kid, I envisioned I remember telling somebody I was going to be a radio DJ, so I always picture myself sitting in front of some kind of a board. Uh, and playing around with music. Um, but also I was a musician, so somehow that all came together in the mid nineties after having been in bands, I went the route of buying gear instead of paying other engineers. So, Mm -hmm. and that happened to coincide with the advent of digital. Uh, In my case, I think first one was a, ADAT setup, which for those of you who are super young, most people know, but it was kind of a uh, video VCR type tape into a mm-hmm. Panasonic or Alesis made. Uh, Alesis was the main one, right? I think. Mm-hmm. And each tape could handle eight channels, so you could and you could piggyback them together. And if you got three units, you could do twenty-four tracks. Uh, then. I had a little studio uh, in downtown Ann Arbor, upstairs with the window and everything, and somehow fell into that really quickly and would record my own music and my friends. In that case, it was uh, Joe Serapair and Chris Hollis and Raleigh Tussing and Brian Lilly. So there was kind of this folk wave, and we did some records. I kind of learned a little there. Then I backed off a little, did my own records, but I got on a label for a while, so I had a budget once and a producer, and I didn't record that. Uh, then I went back for my third solo record after having worked in a, in bigger environments, and I then I was real curious about Pro Tools, and I didn't know about this. Like I knew about them, but I hadn't used it myself. So about 2000. 1999 or 2000, I don't know, right around there, I, I started 
getting into digital mm-hmm. audio workstations. And then from that point on, it was just uh, my musical career kind of slowed down a little and my recording output just started going up. And so I worked out of houses and I did one of my records out of a house and then it did pretty well, at least create uh, critically, I guess. Didn't do awesomely financially. What the fuck? <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. And uh, what's shocking? Yeah, I know. Shocking. Oh no, you didn't. You're encouraged to swear. <laughs> yeah. Part, yeah. And uh, I, I saved my f bomb for the best spot. <laughs> and then I think, uh, in my case, the fact that I had recorded that record, and my, basically it was my musicianship and my records that were appealing to the artists that I worked with. So that's why I worked with a lot of like-minded artists because there certainly were better uh, technical engineers that they could have worked with at that point. But I think people liked working with me because I had just done several records of my own. Mm-hmm. They must have liked the aesthetic of it. I was, you know... So that's where it all came together. And then then I started building a bigger and bigger setup. And by, like I said, by uh, 2000 six or so I I was working with full setups and by two thousand seven I was in a commercial space with the uh eventually with you know full size consoles and mm-hmm. learning how to use patch bays and all that stuff. So I I'm I very different route than you. Um I'd say it's only in the last seven years or something that I really feel like I got a grasp of the whole the system, you know. Wow, you know, may, maybe you have a different perspective on it. Yeah, it's uh, possible. But but for me, from the outsider perspective, it seemed like your work at Backseat is really what elevated you to the point of being in position to to get involved in a place like this and and with the world class gear and and uh, space around here and everything. But it sounds like Backseat was a product of years and years of growing your own equipment, your own. Uh, discography and all of that from home recording eventually. Exactly. And both of those statements are completely true. And mm-hmm. and actually, I taught you know audio recording technology at a community college for 11 years, and I would always give that as one of my early lectures and just so, like, you know, this engineer path is still in existence. It's a little more rare. Uh, it's the one you'll read about in any book you pick up about Jeff Emmerich or any of those guys. They will have you know, notoriously shown up at some studio, told them they're going to make tea, you know, learned, hustled, been there every day. And then one day somebody was sick and they recorded the Beatles. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the standard route, but the important part being going to a studio and hanging around. Mm -hmm. And then the other side is more the modern way, um, which is people kind of morphing together, weird amalgamations of home recording and then slowly working in studios and bringing that together. Mm-hmm. So I think you worked in big studios in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that your path is getting more and more rare. Definitely. Yeah. There's less and less jobs. Uh, you know, even uh, even the place that I worked at, when I worked there, uh, there was eight full-time staff music engineers, and now there are zero. Everybody's Whoa. freelance. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean that tells you know. the, that tells the tale. <laughs> yeah, um, wow. yeah, but even that, you know, I, I uh, not that we're interviewing me, but uh, yeah. 
I started very much, I think, like you did as a home recordist recording my own music. At some point, and it makes sense to me. And uh, at first, I had no intention of being an engineer for other people. I was just trying to engineer myself. And then kind of like I was the guy that had some gear that someone knew, and it just kind of grew and grew. And then at a certain point, it's like, all right, this is real. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go knock on a door at a studio and start making tea, you know? Yeah, exactly. And um, that makes sense to me. And I should mention, I, I don't know about you, I was definitely working on Tascam cassette decks sure. as early in my life as as I could, you know, yeah. so so f- bouncing and yeah. old old school ping-ponging with three tracks, four tracks. But, um, yeah, I relate to that. I do also, I mean, did you find a, a certain point in your life where you were playing a lot less than you were engineering? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I, that's one thing that yeah. people need to really know about is like, whoa. I actually... For a few years, I didn't play music at all. Yeah, I it was kind of like I had to make a choice. You know, they both happen at the same time. You know, nights and weekends, and you know, I do. Uh, I had to kind of put aside that part of my life for a few years to foster the engineering side, and and uh, the pendulum still kind of swings back and forth sometimes, depending on what's going on. You know. Yeah, I'm still way on the engineering more than playing side. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a gig tonight, but it's a rare. I play bass with Misty and stuff, but mm-hmm. thank God, actually. Because I didn't make a, a personal record for you know well over a decade, but if Misty or those people weren't saying like you know show up to practice, I mean don't know if I would have yeah. came out of the <laughs> totally of the room totally yeah. Well, uh, uh, did you bring a uh, track to play here? I do have a track. Friends with the weather. Uh, the song's called "Be the Song." Oh, hear the kick drum pop, dance to the rhythm of your life. Don't stop, we all need a melody to carry on. You are the reason, be the song. Be the song. Yes, we are born. Is a moment to love Your heartbeat move Every choice you make How that you create With the courage to face your fears Beauty is who you are Don't look far For the power to heal It's inside you as a fire Keep it united Shine a light Inspire a light Sing oh, oh Hear the kick drum pop Dance to the rhythm of your life Don't stop We all need a melody to carry on You are the reason Be the song in your soul letting go to find peace and the wonder new string discovered yes we are born alive to live well and vulnerability possibility lifting up one and all in beloved community Drum pop, dance to the rhythm of your life Don't stop, we all need a melody to carry on You are the reason Oh, hear the kick, drum pop Dance to the rhythm of your life Don't stop, we all need a melody to carry on You are the reason, be the song Oh, 
So that was Be the Song by Friends with the Weather. Um, David and Dave and Chris, uh, you can look all this up, uh, wrote the song, uh, sung by Seth Hendricks, and the female vocalist was Aaron Zindel from Ragbirds, and Brennan on bass and Mike Shea on the drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds great, man. Uh, uh, that was mostly together live in the same room with a few overdubs. Was that your approach there? Yep, totally. Uh, trying to remember. I think everybody was live in the room except, obviously, the vocals and probably a little percussion overdub. Or you know, I think most of it was live. Yeah, nice. Sounds beautiful, man. Uh, you know, you're. We were talking earlier about controlling the enormous sound of the room and uh it sure sounds controlled wonderfully on that recording the drums have this lovely little cloud of reverb around them but everything else sounds real crisp and clear and uh yeah just beautiful how how much of that drum sound is the room sound versus stuff you added later um definitely added a little bit so it's uh i would say you know at least 50 50 maybe 60 40 of natural room on it uh I think there's cross stick. I like to add reverb on cross stick and get a nice, you know, nice tail on the on the cross stick. So I probably added some on that. But yeah, I mean that's the reason I chose that track was one of the first tracks, if not the first track, where I really felt like, you know, the room could be used in a subtle way too and still get a nice, you know, professional tight mm-hmm. track. So the drum is is naturally reverberating. There is some bleed. But we still have a nice, you know, a nice rich uh, tone to all the instruments. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I did like the way the drums turned out. Yeah, and it suits that kind of Motowny vibe of the the drier rhythm instruments with you know a little space on the drums. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, we definitely were yeah. a nod to Jackson to the Jackson Five in there. Yeah, also has a huge low end, which I really like. You know, with Brennan and Mike, that's a pretty sweet rhythm section um you know and with all the mentions of kick drum in the tune you had some pressure to get a sweet kick drum sound which yeah I you brought you that did. up it was like, <laughs> <Yeah>. definitely <laughs> if someone's gonna call it out uh <laughs> yeah. brennan played a five string so uh-huh. uh and uh yeah we definitely had to beef up the low end on the on the kick yeah another thing that i love about this mix is the way the two vocals fit together they're both really clear and distinct but also just meld really well together. And of course, Seth and Aaron are a couple of great singers, which I'm sure helps that, um, which is, of course, everything. Right, right, <laughs> but, pretty much. But uh, uh, when you're mixing harmony vocals together, do you have any go-to mix tricks or anything you do to get them to sit well together? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, it's definitely song to song. This one, they d- designed it to be a little bit of a co-lead rather than just like a, a harmony that melts into the other one. So, so she wasn't necessarily nailing every phrase on per- on purpose. She was not. They were trying to leave each other a little room to be individuals. And mm-hmm. honestly, it fell together pretty quickly um, into a nice spot. Um, but I do remember, you know, tweaking her spot in the mix a little bit a couple times until we found a sweet spot. But I, I like it too. I'm glad it it worked. Uh, as far as my general I don't know, man. I have like in my mind, I have things I would do to a background 
vocalist or vocalists, you know, a lot of times, sometimes I'm cutting out a lot of low end or, you know, having them sparkle more. If there's multiple Mm -hmm. female voices, for instance, or high voices, uh, I might cut off a little, you know, roll off a little more of the low end and then uh, compress them to get them to kind of be together so one voice isn't necessarily pulling out on top of the other one a lot mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing. So I'm sure on, you know, probably on this mix probably did a pretty decent job with the with the compressor. I probably compressed each of them individually as we talked about earlier with the, probably the UAD LA2A. Mm-hmm. And then I'm definitely probably had put them to a bus and then uh, hit them again with a subtle compression ah. just to make sure... Uh-huh. Um, I do that a lot. So nice. So compressing the voices individually and then putting a compressor on them together as a group and and letting it kind of blend a little bit more that way too. Yeah, and again, I'd have to look, but I'm pretty sure that I would have done that. Yeah. What kind of projects do you have going on right now here? What's what's coming up for Willis and yourself? Um, we've had a a really great songwriter and lately Mike Galbraith, who's from Detroit, and uh, a lot of great. Detroit players supporting them, um, just who's who of great musicians from Detroit have been been in playing on his band. So I think he's due to come back in for a, a week and a, uh, coming up here pretty quickly. Um, and tying up a beautiful jazz record by Patrick Booth, who's a sax player from up north. Um, I think he even teaches sax at Tech or something. He's up there near... Uh, the peninsula <laughs> which i love and uh um a lot of a lot, lot of work with a uh, local bass player band leader named dave sharp who's had so we've been doing a lot of uh in fact he had his klezmer band in and uh carolyn uh keeble yeah uh-huh she's from your yeah i i, I know her this is a funny story but i bought my I bought a van from her years ago, so we've known each other forever. But she she, she came out and we had this really sweet kind of klezmer session. Yeah, so, she's brilliant. Yeah, and she's really brilliant on that. And all the musicians were so doing a lot of world music, a lot of jazz, some some folk uh, songwriter stuff. Right on. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Really appreciate it, and love come here and see in this place. Thanks, Ian. Anytime. For more on Jim, check out willis-sound.com. You've been listening to Electricians and Madmen. Today's interview was recorded at Willis Sound in Willis, Michigan. Our featured recording was Be the Song by Friends with the Weather. Our theme music was written and performed by Brian Koenigsnacht. For show notes, links, and more episodes, visit electriciansandmadmen.com or subscribe on iTunes. I'm Ian Gorman of La Luna Recording and Sound. Thanks for listening.